because like I said to you, you don't know how strong you can be until being weak just isn't an option. Hi, this is Mick Tully and you're listening to Mixed Martial Arts. On today's show, I've got the one and only Steve Wright. Now, before you turn off, it isn't that awful DJ from Radio 2, but the Steve Wright I've got today is a leading light in the JKD world. Believe it or not, one of the first guys I ever paid to take a private lesson with. You remember that, right? Long, long ago. Long ago. And more importantly, you've heard me say this so many times because I am blessed the amount of great people that I do have in my life, no matter how tangentially linked we are. And I need to spend more time with this this individual. Uh, and you'll find out why I will start talking. Mr. Steve Wright, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. For, no, 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 trust me. It's going to be an absolute joy. So, if you don't mind, just a little bit of a background of, first of all, your qualifications in martial arts, if you don't mind, and then we'll go from there. Okay, well, um, I'm an instructor um, under Bob Breen, and then uh, under Terry Barnett, and uh, I was also onto the Inosanto Instructors Training Program in 2002. Also an instructor under Rick Fay, and uh, became a, an associate instructor under Larry Hartzell shortly before he died. Um, along with that, I've also cross-trained quite a lot in uh, Wing Chun and Savat and uh, Indonesian Penjak Savat. So, Penjak Silat as well. Yeah. And who was that with? That was mainly with Mark McFan. Oh no. Uh, but I also trained. This would have been about this would have been 1998. Um, a guy called Herman Sawanda yes. uh, was over for a week teaching in London at a uh, dance uh, school. It's kind of a, uh, it was a dance event, but they had uh, Park Herman there. They also had uh, Shaolin monks there, and also uh, Kalari Payet. Uh, but it was great. I got to train with uh, under Herman Sawanda for six hours a day for a week for I think it was about 100 quid. Wow, and yeah, God rest his soul. He's mm. he passed away and like at a really really young age as well, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. So what got you into martial arts in the first place? Well, um, a couple of things really. I'd um, back in the uh, kind of mid sixties when I was about four or five years old. Uh, you know the big kind of like the Tarzan. Uh, series and you know be doing all these really cool judo throws and stuff. Yes. And I've kind of found that really, really interesting and cool. Um, then, yeah, I had some problems with being bullied at school. Uh, yeah. And then coincidentally, there was the, the there was the Bruce Lee boom, and um, I started uh, training in judo, uh, trained in that for a couple of years, um, and then. That club folded because I think there'd been an outbreak of scarlet fever among some of the people that had been training there, so they, they had to close it. And there's a, a really good traditional Japanese karate school there, and um, so I, I started training there. I stopped the, the training in karate. My, my instructor used to, had, well, had two of his students who became black belts, and they uh, taught a class uh, at their university, and he used to go along 
once a month and, and trained them on a Friday night. And I used to go along uh, there uh, with him from when I was about 15. Right. So I ended up going to the same university. Um, but I caught a, an almighty dose and got a glandular fever in my second year. So that kind of uh, wiped me out for quite a long time. Uh, in retrospect, I was going back to my studies and stuff far too early. And right. martial arts just kind of dropped by the wayside uh, for three or four years. And then I was in a, uh, I, I'd been, I'd applied for, or well, I'd accepted a job in Rochester. And uh, I'd gone along there to occupational health for a medical prior to starting. I had a bit of time to kill and I was kind of walking up and down the high street and there's a martial arts shop there. And uh, I kind of had a look in. And um, I saw that there was a, a Wing Chun class advertised in um, Maidstone. So I, I asked the guy behind the counter about that. I said, well, he's really good, but um, there's uh, his senior student, uh, they both trained under the same guy. His senior student, people uh, say, seem to say that he's actually better, and he's right. teaching, and he's teaching in Gillingham, which was like twenty minute walk from where I lived in the nurses' home. So I started uh, training with him, and um, that, uh, then I, he moved on to Denmark, and I carried on training under and being the assistant instructor for his senior student, uh, Kevin Chan, and. Um, so that was uh, kind of the late 1980s. Was that Kmart or K? Yeah, 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 you, yeah. Yeah, he just started that up. And when you when you were at uni, mm. what were, what were you studying? I was a uh, uh, my first degree is in social psychology. Right. Mm. And what got you into that? Um, I had a year out between uh, doing my A levels and and subsequently go to university. I didn't originally plan on going to university, um, but uh, what, what I wanted to do looked as if having a degree would be quite an advantage. And so I originally um, so, uh, signed up to do the sociology degree there, but in the, in the year off I uh, did a, an additional A-level, which was in psychology, and I, I found it really very, very interesting. So I swapped um, as soon as I could in my first year. When you first went into like psychology and clinical psychology, what was what 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 sort of people were you helping, or what what was the what was the motivation behind it? Well, I again, I I, um, I didn't really figure on a career in psych in psychology when I went, uh, went the academic route, but uh, I, I became very very interested in the mental health field while doing it, it. and um, my. First, I, my first job after uh, leaving university was a part-time job with the with a uh, family support project run by MenCap. So right. that was uh, mainly uh, children with learning disabilities, but there's also quite I did a fair bit of stuff with adults as well. Then I uh, got a job um, in management in the NHS for a year and uh, got out of that as soon as I could. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, I, can't, I can't see you in that role. No, me neither. <laughs> That's why I left. And uh, at, at that time I, did an, I was doing an additional part-time diploma in psychology to kind of round out my, uh, my knowledge base. And uh, I got a job as a, a nursing assistant at uh, an inpatient adolescent unit. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, 
teenagers essentially with a variety of mental health problems ranging from psychosis through to obsessional compulsive disorders um, and stuff that people couldn't really figure out but they needed a lot of help and then after that I got a post as an assistant psychologist in a community, a community learning disability service which is where I um, met up with my Wing Chun instructor and uh, for the first year of that I was working mainly with adults who had men, uh, learning disabilities and also mental health problems and uh, I was there for a second year and I, that kind of flipped around I was mainly working with children and families there and then after that I got another assistant psychologist post um, at Free and Hospital which is now long gone and it, yes. it dates me having worked there <laughs> and I was an assistant psychologist on the intensive rehabilitation unit there that was kind of people with quite long histories um, of uh, psychotic disorders predominantly schizophrenia and also quite uh, lengthy periods of hospitalisation and then after that I kind of uh, got involved in uh, mental health services research right which is what I'm doing to this day well you, you see it's actually one of the things that I really do like about martial arts is we meet people who just for the simple fact that what they do there is a positive benefit from it mm. we overlook the fact that it is obsessive it is compulsive yeah. and you know if they were knocking on the door four times yeah yeah and they believe that you know like how it use it yeah uh, but then we think nothing of a guy who will drill mm. an armbar 5,000 times yeah, yeah. If, if anything I look at this guy and I admire this guy because yeah. I'm like dude you are really <laughs> like man I wish I could be like that but you know if he was sitting at home if he was sitting at home you know wearing the same underpants for tw like 12 days <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't find that admirable so yeah. first of all have you seen a correlation between that sort of behaviour and martial artists? You, you do, you definitely do see uh, a kind of an obsessive element. That's very true, and I, I yeah, I, I've drunk from that cup myself very, very deeply. So, yes, uh, I'm not in a position to uh, to make any judgments. Um, but on the other side, the, the other side of it is that um, yeah, I, I really like the way that Rick Fago's. Uh, in terms of martial arts as a, uh, a vehicle of self-growth. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are so many things that you can learn from martial art, but what you actually learn is very, very personal to you. And so I always find it very hard when people say, what kind of benefits will, you, will I get from martial arts training? Yeah, the, the only honest answer I could give is, well, that depends on you. <laughs> yes. What are you, what are you prepared to put into yeah. this? Yeah. And, and what you, and maybe some lessons that you need to know that going through that will um, will help you with. Yeah. Well, you see, this is this is going to lead me on to the second part, which is changing your behaviour mm -hmm. and having coping mechanisms in place. I've got a friend of mine. Uh, he was telling me about just the way that he, just his whole thought processes. Yeah and how his thought processes were the obsession mm -hmm. but the compulsion was the fact that he had to act upon these yeah. uh, or, or that you're scared that you act upon them you know, especially because a lot of people have obsessional ideas about hurting people and stuff like that um, and you know, the chances are stacked heavily against them ever doing it Yeah. but it's a very very real debilitating terror for them so they have to do these rituals that will keep them from doing it. You know, it's, it's very sad. It, well, it, it is, and it's like 
we're both of a similar age where I mentioned Howard Hughes earlier Mm. and Howard Hughes for me was one of the first people that was in the public eye Mm. that you we really got an idea yeah we just thought he was just mad you know and again it's that whole yeah if you're rich you're eccentric yeah yeah if you're poor you're mad Mm. yeah and uh, basically what I'm I want you to try and explain only because I'm fascinated is does like can you medicate your way out of this or do you have to think your way out of this Medication can certainly help to reduce uh, the, the anxiety that's the huge feature. Um, you know, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder is an anxiety disorder, so uh, anti-anxiety medication can help, but um, it can be very, very difficult to actually... The way that you change your behaviour is by changing what you do. I mean, that's, that's simple to the point of stupidity. but. Um, people just have to learn ways of dealing with their anxiety that um, aren't as crippling as uh, the the rituals that they go through or ways of keeping obsessional thoughts um, out of their mind or to to stop them. So yeah, I mean, people can be helped to do that and uh, medication would play a role in terms of reducing the levels of anxiety so that there's that cushion. Yeah, it's a bit like training wheels on a bike. Yes. So, uh, yeah, if, if controlling your anxiety is something that you achieve through these rituals that you do, for instance, um, but these rituals are taking up huge amounts of time and trouble and energy and can be actually quite dangerous. You know, somebody's compulsively washing their hands, you know, 100, 200 times a day, they're going to be ended up with really, really bad skin problems and stuff. Yes. Um, so uh, to to change that is going to be is going to provoke enormous anxiety, um, but uh, that can be helped, and medication can play a role in that. Well, you see, it's yeah, and it's Tony Robbins. So basically, I'm not yeah. You know, the only the only way I do like Tony Robbins because he, he just manages to, especially from positive mindset as I always say you know, positive mindset is great as long as there's some affirmative action yeah. otherwise you're just a fucking dreamer you know it's and yeah. the one things I do like about Tony Robbins is like he does this power of 10 thing so he says like you only have to do something 20 times for it to be a habit mm-hmm. but I mean and I was like 20 times yeah, and I'm reading this and I'm thinking it's just like this throwaway figure he's throwing in yeah. and whatever way he's worked out there is some research that's been done in this but it was it, this is done 20 times in like peak mental states mm. where you know where you really that like, this is where you really do yeah you know, your your psyche is shaped in these yeah. periods and he says that to break that habit you have to not do it 200 times <laughs> we, and you know when you hear stuff like that it's like and that isn't like a say fair attitude you know on a like a different yeah you know, it's just an example at the moment I'm trying to go vegetarian and it is killing me Uh, and I have to keep going to YouTube like every time I feel my resolve waning I go to YouTube have a look I just see the horrific behaviour that's going on and I'm like I can't be part of that and then immediately what I'm doing is I'm just overriding my need for eating meat with the fact that I keep telling people that I'm trying to live a compassionate and Buddhist life and you know Again, ironically, 
Yeah, I used to turn around and go, yeah, but if it wasn't for the fact that that animal wouldn't exist if it didn't have to be there for me to eat it. Mm. And you're like, okay, so it lived, but it lived a shit life. Mm. You know, and it, that's what's trying to make my head work at the moment. But with that obsessional behavior, and especially, you know, in the psychotherapy world, did you see a lot of success? Or did you see, did, did it, uh, what I'm trying to get to is, you know, while you're doing this, is it like the end of the Westlife song where they all get up off the bar stools and you're all empowered? Or is it where you just go, you get crushed and you're going, fuck, man. I, I, all I can do is basically bail water here. Well, I, I think Freud said a very wise thing when he, when he talked about what the purpose of psychoanalysis was to remove, uh, was to replace neurotic misery with ordinary misery. <laughs> man, so, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, he talks about things like um, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, you know, the, the, his idea of uh, mental health was the ability to love and the ability to work. Um, right. Simple, everyday, perhaps not that dramatic, but I, I think they're good yardsticks. Yeah, we're we're from a generation where. We got we got the tail end of the tough love, I think, you know. Yeah. And then we had this appeasement work because now I don't know about you, but I look around at people and I'm like, why the fuck do you think you're so special? Yeah. And then what I do is I look and I go, because your parents told you you were special, yeah. you know. And and that's it. My parents never told me I was special. Yeah, and they might have thought I was special, but they never told me I was special. But um, it's like that whole, you know, you're one in a million. That's one of my favourite lines. So I was going. Oh, you know what? He's one in a million. And you go, right, okay, so if we look at the world's population right now, there's 7,000 of him. I'm sorry, but you're not fucking unique. <laughs> there's 7,000. There's another 699 of you. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like But we do have that. And we're trying to find a purpose in our lives. And do you think that we do... You know, why Why is there such this... There's, there seems to be this absolute like almost epidemic of people suffering with mental health issues or you know a lot yeah trust me I've suffered with anxiety attacks but I was self-medicating and drinking yeah. and I'm Irish and I'm fucking Catholic you know <laughs> what I mean you put all of that shit together that's never going to end well but why do you think because it's more prevalent now than I think in any other time it's more well known right uh, yeah. okay uh, I mean if you think about depression for instance uh that is hugely underdiagnosed. World Health Organization thinks it's perhaps the most debilitating illness. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's research that definitely stacks that up. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing of it is, it, it's more well known. People are more able to talk about it. You've got high profile people talking about their mental health problems. Right. So, uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it's the case that um, yeah, it's, it's more common, just more obvious. Yeah, I, I think more people are, are prepared to uh, talk about it as well. Yeah. You, you know, the, the only problem is, because more people talk about it, and because you, you do become anathematized to stuff. Uh, yeah, I... I as you, it's the whole, it's the oldest line in the book. If you ever want to see somebody who really doesn't give a fuck, meet someone in their seventies, yeah. because they're like, 
you know what? Yeah, I'm all compassion that. It's like, you know, when you go to a funeral, yeah. you go to a funeral and like, you're just like, just crushed. And you look at somebody and they're in their 80s and you're like, why isn't, why, why aren't you affected? And then, you know, if you take the time, yeah. Because bear in mind, we should always look to our elders because nine times out of 10, they, even if they're not the wisest, they've been around enough shit to be able to give you a bit of an opinion, right? Yeah, true. And they'll turn around and go, I can't be crushed anymore, you know? Yeah. Everybody they, that I've the, loved is gone. Yeah, they've had the practice. Yeah, they've had what? They've had the practice. They've had the practice, exactly that, exactly that. So it, it is, you know, it's a bit of a crazy, we're, like, we're in the safest period ever in history, period, ever. And we have more people worried about, you know, getting attacked. Like we're, there's more xenophobia now than ever. Yeah, you know, and we're supposed to be dead and lying, you know. You look at this Brexit thing at the moment. Yeah, I, I, have you noticed that normally rational people have just turned into like Oswald Mosley's fucking racist brother? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, foreigners, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh God, I don't know, but not many of you guys are Anglo-Saxon. Uh, how's that, how's that work out? So you mentioned the first degree, right? Yeah. So, and we talked earlier about you know doing a PhD. What else have you done? Well, I I've not done a PhD. Um, my actual job um, is usually is advertised for uh, PhD or equivalent experience, and I was judged by my boss to have equivalent experience. Right. Um, so. Most of, most of the people that I work alongside either are PhDs or they're doing them or they're going to be start doing, start doing one soon. Um, for myself, I, I think I've missed that particular bus because um, you know, I've, um, I've got a toddler to bring up now on my own. Well, not on my own, but as a major player. Yeah. And um, I'm also at that funny age where I'm kind of too old for ambition and too young and too poor to retire. So, <laughs> and the twilight side. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so you did you you did do a second degree? Though. Yeah, I, I eventually did a master's degree in forensic and legal psychology, uh, which was very interesting. Uh, before that, I did a postgraduate diploma in research methods, uh, which has been very very useful. And um, I've done various other bits and bobs to do with uh, uh, to do with uh, research as well. There's a whole range, of, there's about three or four different things that contributed to that. One was I was teaching, I was a part-time adult education tutor teaching psychology courses at the City Lit in London. And uh, I used to teach, I, I, mo I mainly taught about uh, psychology of mental health problems, mental disorders. And um, what I used to do with my class was say, right, okay, we've got 12 weeks or whatever. What I'd like you to do uh, is a couple of weeks before the end of the term, I want you to arrive at some kind of consensus about a topic that I've not covered that you'd like me to cover. And um, right. I don't care how you go about getting this consensus, I just want a clear two-week run at preparing it. And the most, single most popular thing that people were asking about was around mentally disordered offenders and uh, uh, psychology and crime and stuff like that. So I was doing a lot of reading around these areas, and at the time I needed another academic referee. Um, right. And I was looking through the uh, Birkbeck College, uh, which is the part-time college of University of London, 
uh, they had somebody who was in my class had the prospectus. I did my additional psychology diploma through them, so which was you know quite a, a long time before then. So I flicked through and I saw that they had a part-time diploma in criminology, and one of the courses on that was on the psychology of criminal behaviour. So I thought, well, I might as well do this, and uh, because I'm doing a lot of reading anyway, yeah. and it'll give me another academic referee, and I, I need one. So I. Cut a long story short, I did that course, uh, got the um, top uh, exam mark in it, and um, my lecturer said, you've got to take this further. And um, at that time, I was interested, in, I was applying for training in places in clinical psychology, which are very, very competitive, yeah. and uh, a, a master's degree in, in a relevant discipline would be, um, would be quite uh, useful. But also there was a um, there's a chance of working as a psychologist in the prison service, and um, I was talking to the head of uh, forensic psychology at uh, the Institute of Psychiatry where I work about maybe doing some time working in the regional security unit there. And uh, I came out of his office, and right slap in front of me on the notice board was a sign advertising a distance learning master's degree in forensic and legal psychology. Wow! So I had a chat with the bank manager and um, I did, got onto the course and did it. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to work on a topic that gave me a, my um, master's thesis. Uh, and also a couple of journal papers afterwards, which is pretty damn good. Wow! And um, yeah, so and I ended up getting a dis uh, distinction uh, in that. Uh, Jesus. So, but yeah, that was very, very um, interesting. Well, you see, this is again that this is one of the reasons why. Uh, one of the reasons I love doing this show is it gives me a way of finding out stuff about people who are my friends. Uh, where you, you're not able, you can't do it in normal life. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good because it's like, I can turn around and I can say to you, yeah, and just for the interests of the show, Steve, can, yeah, and it's, like, it's not, it's because yeah. I'm a really yeah. nosy bastard. <laughs> and I'm like, this is really interesting. It's like, me, uh, I, you know, as you know, I'm a meat and potato sort of guy. So, yeah. like, the understanding, uh, yeah, I'm one of these guys that, uh, <laughs> mate, bear in mind, well, I'm telling you this, I am very wary of the fact that you are looking inside of my psyche and you know that you're going, shit, this guy's giving me a lift back home and he's a sociopath because I literally am one of those people, I don't want to understand if, a, yeah, I'm the biggest dog lover in the world, right? Yeah. But if a dog bit me or it bit one of my children, I don't want to understand why the dog bit yeah. me and I don't really give a fuck why he bit me, I just want to make sure he never bites anyone again. Yeah. And I have a very, very sort of blinkered view when it comes to crime. So I don't, yeah, I've been in really tough spots yeah. and I've chosen not to do it. So I, I, and I've wanted to kill people and I've, yeah, I, I've just gone, well, do you know what? I'm a good looking guy. I end up in jail. I don't want to end up getting <laughs> raped every night, you know, and that isn't what, that isn't what I'm into. Uh, and I'm making light of it. But you wouldn't have to be good looking. No, no, I, it, it, these guys don't really care. It's like that old line, I don't know if you, you remember the movie Stir Crazy? Uh, Gene Wilder, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, but they were in jail, yeah? yeah. And they used real, real, uh, they used real criminals in Lord of the Crowd scenes. And 
Gene Wilder, so you've got a picture of the scene. Gene Wilder, this really just a wonderful humanitarian white Jewish guy, like couldn't see harm in anybody. Yeah. And he's Richard Pryor, who basically is a trick baby. That's what he was. His, his grandfather, his mother was on the game, yeah. and his grandfather was his mother's pimp. So, you know, you can... So he's seen the world differently, right? So that was why they were such a great odd couple. But like that whole preamble is the, the thing that Richard Pryor told man, he was saying, I think if you take away... Uh, sorry, Jim Wilder said, I think if you take away all of these bars and you just put us all together, I think we'd just all get on. What do you think? And he said, you take away all these bars and we're with these criminals? He goes, yeah. He goes, what do you think you'd do? He goes, I'm going to do a bad Richard Pryor impression. He goes, probably try and rape you and he goes but I'm not going he goes they don't care if you like it (laughs) (laughs) but um, just that insight into this criminal mind it's like when you were studying this do you can you empathise with these guys or is it just well it's a a funny thing because a lot of the guys I knew from back home um, were well criminals yeah (laughs) so um, So I don't, I don't think I ever went into it uh, you know, very blue-eyed and naive. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, with people. Yeah, if I was teaching a, a course on uh, psychology and crime or criminal, well, not criminology, but if I was teaching a course on psychology and crime, I think what I'd do for the first session, and it'd have to be negotiated because it'd be a very long session. I'd just sit everybody down and have them watch Goodfellas. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, just looking at how this guy gets into a life of crime. You know, it gives them opportunities that otherwise they wouldn't have. It gives them respect that otherwise they uh, might not have. But actually, it's not respect; it's fear. But they can. Uh, but to them, it's respect. <laughs> one of my one of my favourite lines. Uh, yeah, I don't care. I don't care if you fear me at the moment, because you know, it, you you will respect me. And a lot of that is subjective. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that is... We all know, you know, the, the Craterans were very well respected. No, they weren't. They were, everyone yeah. was shit scared of them. Yeah. And that's a line that would, you know, for another time where it's... Do you respect this guy or do you respect the fact that he can kick your ass? Yeah. Yeah, are, are we still that primal? Mm. You know, that's the thing. Now, if you don't mind, we're going to go down a little bit of a path here, right? Okay. So, explain to me... Your idea of what faith is? I think the classic thing is um, belief in something that there's no evidence for, but it's that thing that keeps you going. Right. And you know, because what's your belief system? And the, the reason I'm the reason I'm saying this is because you're one of the, as I said, one of the most intelligent men I know. Uh, easily one of the strongest men I know which we'll, we'll go into a bit and, I, and I'm not buttering you up on this because I've fucking told you this and I've told you to your face several times you know you've had shit thrown at you in life that most people would that I know for me I'd go I think I would I, I would crumble right mm. so first of all I just like what you know, what is it you know what 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 belief do you what, what do you as a very intelligent man we should go down the route of atheism, mm-hmm. right? Why, why, why would you look at things differently? Um, 
Well, I am an atheist. But, um, yeah, but yeah, but you see, you're not a closed-minded atheist. Yeah. That's the that's the thing. I flatter myself that I'm reasonably tolerant. Yeah. Um, I just don't see any need for a supernatural answer to questions that we have or any need for a supernatural agency uh, behind anything. I mean, it's like, it's like um, I forget who the guy was but there's the story of the guy who um, uh, did a, a book about um, the world what, what we call uh, science now basically natural what they call natural philosophy yes uh, and um, it was in pre-revolutionary France and uh, the king had a copy of it and he read through it and he said to him but there's no mention of God in here why is that and the author said I see no need for that hypothesis wow <laughs> and that, that's kind of my, my position I know there are smarter people than me who have faith um and there are dumber people than me that are atheists, but there are also smarter people than me who are atheists and dumber people than me who have faith. So it kind of comes out of the wash, really. Well, you see, that, you know, you, just as you're saying that, it's like being a lapsed Catholic. Yeah. yeah, as I said, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't give a shit, you know what I mean? Yeah. I hope I come back as a dog or a monkey. No, my <laughs> luck, I'll come back as a dung beetle or some fucking bacteria. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't really, I don't really care. But just as you were saying that, you know, you're more open-minded than me because... I have friends of mine who are wonderful people, and they really are, but, you know, the belief that there's something bigger than us, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, do we, do we need the cosmic, do we need the ultimate naughty step of heaven and hell? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you, if the way you treat other people depends on fear of some guy in the sky with a beard, then I think you've got some rather more basic problems that need to be taken <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, it's uh, it, it, just as you were saying when you're on about the when you're on about the book that the King yeah. of France had. It's yeah. like, right, okay, but you look at Galileo and Copernicus. Yeah. Look, look, look what the church did to those guys. Yeah. Well, that's a, a slightly vexed question because the, the church represented the temporal authority as well and power, and obviously going against the church's teachings. Um, was a, a challenge to their power. So, yeah. um, so it, it's, a, it's a slightly um, uh, two-edged question. But uh, as you know, Buddhists don't see any need for any belief in any supernatural being either. No. Uh, it's quite funny because uh, my daughter's grandmother uh, is, well, she's a former RE teacher. She's uh, a huge... Former ecumenical officer for the Church of England. Wow! That side of the families had a the Church of England's had a huge kind of impact there. Lots and lots of vicars and, and people like that. Um, uh, my girlfriend's father was a vicar, um, and um, yeah. So so uh, so the church. You know, even though I'm not a part of it, the church has loomed large in my life. Uh, yes. One of one of my girlfriend's. Uh, Uncles as a, a retired vicar as well, really, really nice guy. Really love speaking with him. And, uh, yeah, so yeah, that's. I yeah, you that's see, so I, I've, you know, one of my one of my favourite people in the world is my parish priest, Father Bob. Yeah. And Father Bob keeps saying to me, he goes, you know, I'd love to get you to come back to church. And I'm like, but there, you know, just some of those stories in that book of shit. Yeah. And he, <laughs> yeah, I don't say that, but I say, I just, 
I, I have I have some doubts that a 600 year old drunken man built a boat that saved yeah. every animal on the planet yeah. he goes but it's a parable and I'm like okay and he said but if you can see it, the wisdom and, and I'm like sorry but all of that Abrahamic text looks just awful to me that none of it makes any sense now you mentioned your daughter yeah right so how many seminars did I used to always turn on and as soon as I met you I didn't even ask how you are I was used to ask how B was right yeah and then she was always like what do these people ask about me and they never meet me right <laughs> uh, but it was it, it, yeah, it was it was a running joke for a yeah. long time yeah, right yeah. so how did you first meet B um, oh this is a, a long long story um I was training um, uh, one of my long-term uh, private clients and I have to say that she's probably the best person that I've ever trained from scratch. Right. Uh, really, really good. And, um, she'd, been, she'd been kind of away from uh, uh, teaching, uh, from being trained for quite a while and then she came back quite briefly. and. Um, I, uh, I was just out of a uh, pretty uh, disastrous relationship and yeah, we were catching up and this kind of came up in conversation. And yes. she said, oh, you should try Guardian Sublates because I just met this guy and I've just married him and, and this is getting really good, yeah, you, you, you give it a try. So I thought, well, why not? So I did and uh, I, I can't remember whether it was me who answered these ad or me answering my ad. But uh, it turns out that she was living just like a mile away down the road. Right. And, um, we met up and magic happened. Well, you know, when you were when you were saying about the religious thing, well, all of her stuff on Facebook, she seemed like a, a, a very free spirit. She's so, a pagan. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a joke. Mm. So you know, a pagan and an atheist walking to a bar. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you, you know. How old were you at the time? I was, blimey, how old was I? Um, 45. Right. It was, it was March, for, no, uh, yeah, 45, it was March 2008. Right. And, if you don't mind me saying, you were, you were quite, uh, a, quite a seasoned man to, uh, not be getting into a relationship, but to becoming a, a father. Well, that, uh, again, that's a, a very unusual, well, not unusual story, but um, right, right from our second date, he said, look, um, I'll be straight with you, I want a committed relationship and I want children. And so I was like, okay, yeah. let's see, let's maybe not do that today, let's, <laughs> let's, let's see how it goes. Uh, but isn't that, yeah, but isn't that the beauty, isn't that the beauty of, as you get older, that you don't play around with games anymore? True, yeah. You I know? Mean, B, B was 10 years younger than me, um, right. which I never get too tired of saying. And, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and she was a tremendous stroke of good luck. Yeah, and so, you don't mind me saying, we, we talked about this earlier, <laughs> but your daughter Asha was the product of... Well, um, <laughs> me and B. Uh, what, what actually happened, because uh, I can see you dancing around the subject. Yeah, well, no, no, I'm too polite. Um, well, three uh, around three months after we met, four months after we met, uh, B was diagnosed with breast cancer. Right. Um, and she kind of she noticed a lump some uh, weeks before. She'd been to the GP. GP referred her to a specialist, uh, to, to an oncologist for tests. 
and she told me about it just to the point where she'd um, had the tests because she was scared I'd up and run. And, right. uh, but I just said, look, you know, it doesn't make any difference at all. And um, there's myself, me and one of her oldest friends went along to the oncologist to get the result of the test and unfortunately uh, she was found to actually have a malignant growth. And uh, we were offered the option of uh, IVF because uh, the chemotherapy would most likely render her sterile. And um, we, we took them up on that very, very quickly. I have to say that they were very, very good because usually they'd only consider it if um, we'd been in a relationship for at least a year. Right. And, uh, when we were there having the initial interview and stuff, uh, it's like, uh, oh, how long have you known each other? Four months. Oh, well, we normally only do this after uh, people have been together for a year. Well, I think we met each other a little bit before then. Yes, <laughs> so then, yes. then we, we were a bit creative with the account. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we, we went through with the, uh, with the IVF and we had five embryos. Um, B was actually quite resistant to conventional treatment yeah and, uh, but eventually after two years it became obvious that that was going nowhere fast so um, she had chemotherapy she kept her hair through the chemotherapy which is wow. very very unusual um, she then had a mastectomy and partial and reconstruction both in the same uh, operation and prior to that I made sure that she's in the best possible physical shape to be going into the yes and um, it was quite funny because I was there when she came around from the anaesthetic and the surgeon came in. They took the tissue to do the reconstruction from her stomach. They said, uh, I have to say, you've got the best abdominal muscles I've ever seen. <laughs> and she just pointed at me and said, it's them. That is him. And, uh, um, it's him and his kettlebells, yeah, right. And um, yeah, so uh, she got fixed. Uh, we got the all clear. And uh, we went ahead. We had two embryos implanted and, and one took. And um, we had a particularly tough time around the, uh, the birth. Uh, basically, for about five days, they were trying to induce uh, things, and, and nothing was shifting. And right. so they eventually had to do an emergency C-section. And I was in the in theatre with her, uh, sitting by her. And um, the surgeon had a quick word with her, and she kind of nodded, and he went back. I didn't really catch what was happening. Yeah. What it turned out was that he, he was aware of the history and uh, didn't like the look of her right ovary. And he was asking for permission to take biopsies. And uh, we subsequently found that she also had ovarian cancer, uh, which had also spread to uh, ribs, uh, pelvis and fever and femur on the right side, but the right side was uh, the affected breast. And um, yeah, so uh, she went back into treatment. Unfortunately, things uh, about April last year, she was in a very badly deteriorating condition, and uh, I'm afraid she died on September the 10th last year. Yeah. So. Uh, well, it, you know, I remember it was. It literally was. It was one of those. You 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 put it on Facebook, <laughs> and I think I. Yeah, I I I was just obviously you you know me well enough to know what I'm like. I'm yeah. I'm a braggadocious, you know, sod at the best of times. But when it's something that's important, I'm brutal. Yeah. I, 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 I just don't handle, you know, the, the whole persona that I have is that I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm a very sentimental, very, very yeah. soft person, really. 
and I remember seeing it and when you put it out and you, you I can't remember the way that you the way that you worded it but it was beautiful for a start and then secondly it was like you know she'd lost her battle and literally I remember looking at it I read it and I, I was fucking crying yeah. and I, I you know there was a lot of it to bear there was, there was a fucking hell of a lot of it and sorry for swearing but there was a lot and you know it was just like wow and it was it was mad because it was one of these one of the only people that really like like really had that joie de vivre you know and I was thinking wow man this just is brutal but you know since then like you know now you're a single father and as I said first of all dude I've told you you're one of the bravest men I know but you said something and I've got to get you to share it because you you said something when I said to you about the fact that you'd been able to yeah, I, I know the line you mean, and I wish I could uh, take credit for uh, for uh, originating it. But uh, it's like I said to you, you don't know how strong you can be until being weak just isn't an option. That's unbelievable. Yeah, but it's the truth, right? Yeah. yeah. But it was like the minute you said it, and I was a kid. Uh, I don't think I'll be able to do it. You were, you don't have a choice. Yet. Mm-hmm. This is just how it is. Yeah. You know, you are going to deal with it. Yeah simple and again I had a bit of practice because uh, like um, a couple of years uh, a couple of years prior to that my brother died of lung cancer wow so, uh, uh, and that, that was quite strange because I can remember going with the to an outpatient appointment at the oncologist and then getting on the train to go back up to Nottinghamshire to, uh, to be with him in the hospital so I think wow. this is just uh, this is a bit too much yeah know? just a little bit just a little bit oh no but the, the only thing is you are like you're doing a wonderful job with our show you know it's like as if we, you know, we, were, we were talking earlier and I said to you you know there's, there's two things I want you to, to to share the first one is as I said when I when I see a dress like a sunflower or something on Facebook I love it but when you were saying that her uh, your, your personal favourite was where she was dressed like a T-Rex yeah yeah, yeah that was it she's dinosaur crazy is she yeah, yeah. And, the, and the other one was when you're working out mm-hmm. and she's there with you yeah no yeah. I wasn't working out I was I, we were in oh, the park oh right we were, we were in the park you're in the uh, yeah, and what are you doing? Uh, I thought you were working out. No, no, no. We were, we were, we were in the park. She, uh, she was on the swings, and I, I was pushing her on the swing. I always stand in front of her because I like to maintain eye contact and talk to her. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm pushing her on the swing, and she's kicking me in the chest. That is getting a bit irritating. So, um, so I said, Asha, please don't kick Daddy in the chest. <laughs> and uh, then I kind of paused for a bit and I said, When you're bigger. I'll teach you how to kick people properly. And she said, why do I need to know how to kick people properly? And I said, because it's an essential life skill. <laughs> and I swear this is true. She then said, why is it an essential life skill? <laughs> She's said, your daughter. Because sometimes in life, you will meet people who will need a good kicking. <laughs> and she just looked very, very quizzically at me and said, oh. <laughs> That's exactly, if only, if only we could have that outlook that most yeah. children have. That's it. So then, what's the future hold for you? Well, um, I really don't know. Um, carving out a new kind of normal. And, uh, a new kind of normal? Yeah. Jeez. Well, that, that's what bereavement's about. Carving out a new kind of normal. And, um, yeah, looking forward to uh, watching Asher grow up and watching forward to training.
training people and looking forward to improving in the art and getting stronger and uh, enjoying all the strength training and conditioning work as well. Uh, do, you, do you know what, Steve, is it, like, honestly, and I, I do mean this, thanks, I mean for everything. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for listening today. You can listen to all our interviews on MixedMartialArts.com. Mixed Martial Arts is a paint your headphones production. Wah!